Welcome to a Monday night edition of Tisky Sour. Lots of huge stories for you tonight. An attempted insurrection in Brazil. We speak to a guest there. A breakdown in talks between trade unions and the Tories and Rishi Sunak's cringe-inducing refusal to say whether he uses a private GP. I'm joined all evening by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? Michael Walker, if only it was all evening. It's only for one hour. What's the pity? Let's get going. In a last-ditch attempt to avert a new wave of strikes in the public sector, ministers in the health, education and transport departments invited union leaders in for talks today. Now, the highest profile one of these are strikes which relate to the collapsing health service. So Health Secretary Steve Barclay was under particular pressure. He doesn't appear to have got the goods, though. Anaka Sab is lead national officer for Unite, who represent part of the ambulance workforce. The government have missed yet another opportunity to put this uh, right. We came here uh, in good faith. Uh, what they want to talk about is productivity. Productivity, when our members uh, are working 18-hour shifts, quite how you become more productive with that, I uh, do not know. But today, unfortunately, despite us showing up in good faith, the government have missed yet another opportunity to put this right. And what will happen is that the strike action taking place by Unite members, our ambulance workers, and I think it is important to remember, this is about across the NHS. This isn't just nurses. Everybody who works across the NHS is just as important. Our ambulance uh, members will be taking strike action uh, on the uh, on the 23rd. So very disappointed today, but unfortunately, not surprised. Ambulance workers are set to go out on strike this Wednesday and then again on the 23rd of January. There was no more success in discussion over nurses' pay. Now, the lead negotiator for the Royal College of Nurses gave this statement following their meeting with the health secretary. Today's meeting was bitterly disappointing, nothing for the current year, and repeating that the budget is already set for next year. This intransigence is letting patients down. Ministers have a distance to travel to avert next week's nurse strike. So it sounds from that that there probably will be a nurses' strike going on next week. Now, moving on to education, the teaching unions were also invited to Whitehall this morning to discuss their pay dispute. After that meeting, this was the verdict of the Joint General Secretary of the NEU, Kevin Courtney. There is a suggestion of further discussions. We've offered to clear our diaries this week for those further discussions. Further discussions about what their evidence to the STRB might be for next year. And we were pressing for some discussion about pay this year as well. I think we can all say that we don't think those meetings would have been happening without the prospect of industrial action. Uh, so we will always engage and always be there. But while saying there are thoughts of further meetings, there's no sense of concrete progress on any of those things as yet. The National Education Union will announce the results of their strike ballot next week. The union says that teachers have lost 24% of their pay in real terms since 2010. For support staff, that's a 27% loss. Now, unsurprisingly, that's contributed to a workforce crisis in Britain's schools. The final group of unions to meet with ministers were from the rail sector. Theirs is the longest-running dispute of those mentioned so far. And Mick Lynch of the RMT remained tight-lipped about the outcome of talks. Tell them the truth. That's We're it. going to have further talks this week. But Can you just tell me how it went? talking to ministers, do you think that's a change? It's well, it's different from not talking to them, so that's for the better. But we'll be talking to them this week about... 
detail proposal. Do you think strikes might be able to be averted from this new term? Well, I've said it all, That's it. I we're going to get them thrown. Are you more hopeful than you were before? I'm always hopeful. I'm not, neither more nor less. <laughs> neither more nor less. So we didn't learn too much from that interview. Aaron, seriously, these talks don't seem to have gone very well as yet. Is that a surprise? Was that to be expected? It's not a surprise. I mean, firstly, there may be varying degrees to which the government is willing to negotiate and move its position in relationship to certain industries. It would make sense, for instance, to give more latitudes towards nurses and NHS staff than towards rail workers. There is pretty widespread support for industrial action across the economy, but there is a, an overwhelming majority of people support nurses who are going on strike, whereas in the case of rail workers, it's actually a minority. It's a strong minority, but it's a minority. And then for other sectors, uh, for instance, like postal workers, it's a plurality. So who knows in terms of what the government's doing in relation to in relationship to each sector. What I would say is it's quite plausible that we're also looking at a strategy of delay, defer, drain. How do you try and erode confidence and momentum and motivation amongst workers who are willing to go on a bunch more strikes, having spent much of the last six weeks doing precisely that? Well, you offer them a a modicum of hope and optimism, and then you proceed to take it away. So that may be one strategy we're seeing here. And so I think the circumspect nature of Mick Lynch's response is both smart and I think insightful. Also, I suppose, you know, their disputes have been going on longer. So there's probably, it's probably, I imagine it's a bit more technical with the health and education sector. It seems like they were really very much sort of an opening play in discussions where with, with the RMT, it's been going on for quite a while. Let's get on to later in the day, Steve Barkley gave a statement to the House of Commons. He outlined a range of measures he hoped would improve the situation in the NHS, including £200 million to free up beds in care homes and elsewhere. That's to allow patients to be discharged from hospitals. But he didn't mention the strikes at all. That was until Health, or Shadow Health Secretary, sorry, Wes Streeting made him. This winter has seen patients waiting hours on end for an ambulance. Yeah. A&E departments overflowing with patients and dedicated NHS staff driven to industrial action in the case of the nurses for the first time in their history because the government has failed to listen and to lead. I noticed the Secretary of State didn't take a moment to talk about the abysmal failure of his talks with nurses and paramedic representatives today. So let me say to him, every cancelled operation, delayed appointments and ambulance disruption due to strikes could have been avoided if he had just agreed to talk to NHS staff about pay. Today, he could have opened serious talks to avert further strikes. Instead, he offered nurses and paramedics 45 minutes of lip service. If patients suffer further strike action, they will know exactly who to blame. He refers to talks uh, with the trade unions, and it is right that we are engaging with the trade unions. I was pleased to meet uh, the Staff Council of the NHS today, and indeed the Chair of the NHS Staff Council, Sarah Gorton, said the discussions had made progress, notwithstanding one trade union leader who wasn't in the talks, given an interview outside the department uh, to comment on what had and had not been said in those talks. But we want to work constructively with the trade unions on that. So Barclay was technically correct there. Unite's Ono Kassab, who we showed you earlier, has confirmed to LBC that he wasn't in the room with Barclay, but a Unite rep was. And Kassab said, quote, I have the full 
briefing. Now, obviously, negotiations like this involve teams of people. Only one person from each union was allowed to go in the room. And guess what? Trade unionists talk to each other. They're collective organizations. Aaron, what do you make of that? It seemed a little bit puerile, didn't it? Steve Barkley, health secretary, saying, oh, well, the guy giving the interview wasn't even in the room. Like, there are some real substantial issues at play here, and he seems to just be taking little digs at trade unionists. It's always, isn't it? It's just pathetic. I mean, most organizations, Michael, when a negotiation is done or there's a meeting of some kind of real importance with senior people, that is then relayed to the press by, guess what? Press officer. That's not this person's job, but I'm just saying that the idea that somebody can only authentically comment on something if they were in the room is clearly nonsense. You know, imagine Manchester United have just signed Voot Veghorst, footballer. Were you in the room when he signed the contract, Mr. Man United press officer? Clearly ridiculous. And it's that inanity and triviality which, which, which the Tories use not just to, not just to rebut things, but actually just to, they, they, they turn political debate and how we, we talk about politics in this country, they just turn it into a, a mud field of shit. You know, you, I can't think of a better term. So you just sort of you just get stuck in the mud and you can't really get anywhere and you can't really agree any, can't reach any points of agreement and you can't kind of create a foundation for an informed, sensible debate. And it's, it's, it's akin to a playground. But let's get to the facts here, Michael. Billionaires in this country saw their accumulated wealth increase by more than 100 billion during the pandemic. The Institute of Fiscal Studies has announced that in order for the entire public sector to see their wages keep up with inflation would cost approximately 18 billion. More than 100 billion, 18 billion. That's the kind of debate we need. And instead, we have people like Steve Barclay throwing mud in a way which is more becoming of a 12-year-old child. Over on Twitch, Doc Gobbler says the government is happy to be seen as negotiating while unions run down the strike fund. Final point on this, Aaron. Do you think sort of dragging this out is in any way in the Tories' interest? Are they relishing this to some degree? I can't see how they are, Michael. It's important to say this is unprecedented territory. I think in October, in terms of hours lost, it was the worst month for industrial actions since the early 90s the best of my recollection. And December was way, way worse than October. We don't yet have the data. So this is not normal. Uh, over a Christmas period, being unable to get trains for weeks on end, you know, I had to commute into London. I was, I was one of those poor people. And God bless the RMT. I haven't got a problem with them doing it. My God, people were very miserable, uh, Michael. Same with the post office, driving instructors, um, of course, the NHS, other parts of the economy too, bus drivers, this is very, very unusual. And I, I feel like there was a sense, in my experience anyway, and look, this is just people commuting into London, of just fatigue, of dread, of doom. And that's not just, <clears throat> excuse me, that's not just the industrial action. It's also, of course, a combination with the weather, dark, economic recession. You know, we're not hearing much economic good news at the moment. 2022 was a very tough year in a bunch of ways. People want optimism. They want something to look forward to. And they don't want to hear from the government. You know what we're saying for the next six months? We're going to war with the unions. People don't want it. Even Tory voters, Michael. That's my sense of things. So it's a strategy that's been pursued by the government because they don't want to give these high wage increases to the public sector. It's not a question of we want to take on the unions because it's politically expedient. Actually, they're looking at 10, 11, 12% inflation because of the war with Ukraine, because of... China's economic demobilization post-COVID, some other reasons too. You might point, for instance, to the, the economic sort of stimulus you saw during COVID. They weren't expecting that kind of inflation, and that's created a political problem for them, which is public sector workers wanting rising wages or wages to keep up with inflation. So 
They're responding to a big political problem they've not seen in 40 years, rather than seeking out a political fight. Because frankly, I, I don't think they're going to win that political fight. I think it's going to be very difficult for them. No, I'm with you on that one. I mean, these have already been going on for quite a while and the public haven't turned on the trade unionists because I think everyone recognizes that the Tories have run down our public services to the point of complete collapse. No one is sort of looking jealously on at these nurses with their privileged pay packets and saying, oh, these guys have it so lucky. That's clearly not what's going on here. Next story. An apparent attempt to overthrow Brazil's newly elected leftist president Lula has been stopped but not before some 3,000 supporters of former far-right President Jair Bolsonaro stormed the Brazilian Congress as well as the President's office and the Supreme Court. At around 3pm on Sunday afternoon, Bolsonaristas charged the free buildings in the capital, Brasilia. Windows were smashed, furniture was broken, and vehicles were set alight. Now, luckily, the buildings were virtually empty, as the Brazilian Congress is currently in recess. At around 6pm that day, Lula declared a federal security intervention in the state of Brasilia. That put the police under the control of an official appointed by him. It followed concerns that the police had failed to act to stop the violence. The newly appointed official also has the power to investigate and discipline officers who failed to act on the basis of their political beliefs. By late evening, the police had managed to take control of the free government buildings, although clashes with rioters continued into the night. As of Monday afternoon, 1,500 people have been arrested. The rioting Bolsonaro supporters say that Lula stole the presidential election. Now, of course, that claim is completely false. Many of those involved in the attempted insurrection have been camped out in front of the Federal Army headquarters since October, where they begged the army to stage a military coup. The Supreme Court has now ordered that the authorities break up those camps amidst fears that further violence could break out in the coming days. This is Bolsonaristo Vini Rossignolo filming during the rioting in Brasilia. Here we are, taking Brazil again. The helicopter. Look at this. Look at what they're doing. They're shooting against us. They're using bombs. Look at that. Brazil won't become communism. This is our country. We don't accept the result of the election because it was Brazil was stolen. Brazil was stolen. We want to see who we have voted. Look at that. Federal police using a helicopter, shooting against us. Federal police. You can hear bombs. Look at that. Look how we are there. It's a crowd. It's our crowd. So the idea that the election was stolen has been encouraged by Bolsonaro himself. After the result, he frequently hinted at voter fraud and refused to concede Lula's victory for several days. And prior to Lula's inauguration on January the 1st, Bolsonaro fled to Florida in the USA. That's against convention. Normally, you'd go to the inauguration and hand over the presidency. Now, in response to the attacks on the government, Lula made this statement on social media. You must have followed the barbarism in Brasilia today. Those people we call fascists, the most abominable thing in politics, invaded the palace and Congress. We think there was a lack of security. Whoever did this will be found and punished. Democracy guarantees the right to free expression, but it also requires people to respect institutions. There is no precedent in the history of the country what they did today. For that, they must be punished. 
And he goes on, and we are going to find out who are the financiers of those who went to Brasilia today, and they will all pay with the force of law. In support of Lula, US President Joe Biden tweeted this, I condemn the assault on democracy and on the peaceful transfer of power in Brazil. Brazil's democratic institutions have our full support and the will of the Brazilian people must not be undermined. I look forward to continuing to work with Lula. And Rishi Sunak posted this remarkably similar message on social media. I condemn any attempt to undermine the peaceful transfer of power and the democratic will of the people of Brazil. President Lula and his government has the United Kingdom's full support, and I look forward to building on our country's close ties in the years ahead. Some international lawmakers have gone further, though, with U.S. Democratic Senator Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeting this. Nearly two years to the day the U.S. Capitol was attacked by fascists, we see fascist movements abroad attempt to do the same in Brazil. We must stand in solidarity with Lula's democratically elected government. The U.S. must cease granting refuge to Bolsonaro in Florida. David Adler is a political economist and general coordinator of the Progressive International. He joined us earlier today from Sao Paulo, and I began by asking him if what we've seen in Brasilia was just a copycat version of the January 6th insurrection in the US that took place almost exactly two years ago. Watching the footage coming out of Brasilia yesterday, it's impossible to miss the parallels. It's impossible to miss the parallels in terms of the role that the federal police played in accompanying, if not encouraging outright, this unprecedented attack on Brazil's physical as well as sort of spiritual institutions of democracy. The parallels in the imagery are striking in terms of the selfies being taken, the sort of glee of desecration in the Congress, Supreme Court, and presidential palaces that were stormed and ransacked by these people. And I think that, you know, it is critical that we account for the contagion of these kinds of anti-democratic tactics and the underlying networks uh, of which they are part, not just in the ways in which, it's just not like a, a pure mimesis where one's copying the other. These are movements that are embedded in common international networks of far-right fascists that stretch from you know, the tip of Argentina all the way across the Atlantic into Europe. Well, those links are well-documented. And it's not just those frontline fascists who are there smashing and breaking everything. As Lula has continued to emphasize, we also need to account for who's financing these movements, who's, who's paying for the all-expenses trip to Brasilia from all around the country to encourage these people to get out there and sow that kind of chaos and distrust in Brazil's democratic institutions so that we don't end up with the kind of lone madman theory of Bolsonarista violence, but rather a clear, much more structured understanding of who are the constituencies that benefit materially from this kind of disruption, disorder, and incursion into the early Lula presidency. Who does benefit from it? Because I suppose, you know, if we're talking about contagion from country to country, you know, the capital riots weren't particularly successful. They didn't mobilize support for the end of democracy and the reinstalling of Donald Trump. I mean, there was very little popular support, really, for what happened there. And it seems to me, potentially, that you've got a bunch of people who are copying a failed insurrection, which is also, you know, which has also proved to, to have failed. So what's the, what's the thinking? Is there any logic to, to what's happened here? There's certainly a lot of rage and a lot of conspiratorial uh, thinking that kind of runs through these tendencies across, let's say, the hemispheric Far right. But I think we would be wrong to think that these are errant, stray, or psychotic 
you know, political ideologies made manifest in these insurrections. Because I think that we have to make sense of the deep and enduring asymmetries between left and right in the construction of a political project. You know, when we talk about the left, when we talk about social democracy, we are talking about a program that is uh, that requires a social peace, that requires a kind of compromise, that requires a sense of shared fate and collective action and the capacity for the people to be organized, whether that's in social movements or trade unions or political parties, and to legislate, right? The left, um, the, our side, so to speak, of the political spectrum depends on the ability for the state to provide basic social goods and hopefully for the provision of social goods to provide a benefit to all of society, not just to the direct beneficiaries, but through fiscal spending, uh, as well as through taxation, to create the conditions for a fair and better society. And so all of that requires a certain context of social peace and harmony that the opposite set of reactionary forces do not require. So for them to sow chaos, for them to sow distrust and doubt in democratic processes, for them to hit out at the legitimacy of institutions and inflame the political polarization that is dividing this country so much, that actually they can live in that chaos. You know, right-wing interests do thrive in certain entropy. For the Lula project, for example, to work at, a, at the economic level, you're talking about building an economy that's moving away from just raw extraction of resources, raw materials, and exporting them to one that's producing high-value goods, that's changing the way that Brazil relates to the global economy, ensuring that more of the benefits of their production are coming back to Brazilian workers. Whereas for the big agribusiness, which Lula has identified as a main antagonist that was likely financing this insurrection in Brasilia, all they cared about is exploitation, extraction, these base forms of primitive accumulation here in Brazil. And that can be done in the context of tremendous chaos when it's one man against another man, when it's one class against another class. So one really, one, one group in the Bolsonaristas really thrive on that zero-sum conflict between white and black, rich and poor, north and south. That is the basis for their type of mobilization. Whereas the reason why it's so effective, even if we call it a failed insurrection, is precisely because a government like Lula's it strives to build the basis for not just social harmony, but a kind of national unity that this uh, aims to disrupt. That makes sense. So the idea wasn't to sort of create a new government. It was to uh, a wrecking operation, really, for the, for the existing government to try and stop a positive program being implemented. Can we talk about actual coups? Obviously, the history of military government is much more recent in Brazil than in United States, where all these comparisons are being made between you know the capital rights and this, as we've been talking about. Um, is there a risk of a real coup in Brazil? How have the military responded to this? How have the police responded? Is there a division within the state? There's a strong division with the states. And I think that making sense of the institutional architecture here in Brazil is critical to making sense of both what happened yesterday and, as you put in your question, Michael, about the prospects for future unrest here in Brazil. So what we saw yesterday was the complicity of the federal police in particular. This isn't the first time, even in the last few months, that we've seen the police contribute to a crisis of democracy in Brazil. Many of your viewers will remember uh, here on election day when there was a, another coup <laughs> plan hatched by the so-called highway federal police uh, with a, an order signed in the early hours just before election day saying that you know, the federal police were not supposed to comply with whatever orders came down from the Supreme Electoral Tribunal, but set out to create roadblocks and prevent voter participation in highly Lula-supporting regions of the country. So this kind of institutional rot uh, is, runs quite deep. And of course, Bolsonaro oversaw uh, four years 
of uh, sustained institutional rod and capture uh, at those low levels. So we've long been afraid of the role of police, of military police in particular, in facilitating these attacks on democratic institutions in Brazil. Uh, and in the case of yesterday, not taking selfies and smiling and encouraging them to basically march their way into Congress in the same three powers plaza where, you know, one year ago I participated in the largest mobilization of indigenous peoples in the history of Brazil. And even that peaceful, peaceful march from all across the country was met with such severe repression and not just tear gassing, but basically immediate eviction from, from the same territory where, you know, these Bolsonaristas were basically marching through the barricades. So the question you ask is the right one in the sense that uh, while there's institutional rot in some parts of the Brazilian state, the military has been pretty straight with the question of the coup. This is the thing that has been giving the most peace of mind to Lula and his allies for a long time. If you spoke to people before the election, as much of the hysterics there were around the potential for a coup to be led by Bolsonaro, most of them would say the same thing. They would say the risk of a coup does not come from above, it comes from below comes from the fact that Bolsonaro oversaw the multiplication, I think fourfold multiplication in a year, should fact check that, but massive inflow of uh, small arms to basically give guns, handguns, pistols to these uh, fringe Bolsonarista supporters at the base level, that the risk was of them going out and causing violence, which we saw several assassinations of Lula supporters, lots of violence at that kind of grassroots level. But most of these generals uh, have not been interested in participating in an anti-constitutional military coup, despite, as you say, the long history uh, of Brazil's U.S.-backed military coup and Bolsonaro's longstanding uh, nostalgia for that era. But as they say in Brazil, there's never been a coup in Latin America that was not uh, endorsed, if not outright uh, facilitated by the United States. And here we've seen a pretty swift response by the Biden administration backing up Lula and his democratic credentials. And we can get into what, why that is and what that's about and how deep that runs. But I think that uh, it's quite clear that the, the energy and the infrastructure is not in place to facilitate a more serious uh, regime change type coup here in Brazil. Uh, let's talk about Bolsonaro. He is in Florida right now. I mean, if you want to be you know, a relevant player in an oncoming social war, you should probably be in the country, I would have thought. What's he, what's he thinking? Why has he gone to the United States? Bolsonaro fled the country for the very simple reason that he was expecting imminent prosecution for the litany of crimes that he committed here in Brazil. Um, to take one example, you know, lots of people speak one of the main strains of so-called antipachismo, which is hatred of the Workers' Party, Lula's Party, is the idea that they oversaw some corrupt schemes, you know, whether it was Jim Rousseff, this kind of claim that led to eventually to her coup, legal coup in 2016, or the same claims about Lula's corruption that saw him falsely imprisoned for 580 days, uh, not, not so long after. Uh, the irony there is, of course, that Bolsonaro oversaw the single largest corruption scheme in the history of Democratic Brazil, raiding state coffers to pay off his allies in Congress, a massive vote buying scheme that's very, very well documented and was going to take very little time for Lula's new Justice Department to levy charges against Bolsonaro. So he went to the safe haven for all of the you know, anti-communists over the past 75 years, which is southern Florida, where he joins you know, a legion of uh, Cuban emigres and Venezuelan emigres who are plotting uh, conspiracies against the left-wing governments in their respective countries. So that came as very little surprise. What has come as more a surprise is the energy that seems to be emerging from some members of Congress in, in, in Washington, I'm talking about Joaquin Castro or, or AOC's tweets yesterday that suggest a real desire for accountability for these crimes of Bolsonaro, lest Florida become kind of refuge for, uh, for authoritarians, which of course is historically speaking quite ironic given the role the United States has 
always played as providing safe haven for some of these criminals, particular anti-communist criminals. But we may see uh, the escalation, uh, not just of rhetoric, but of potential investigation by the Department of Justice. We'll see how far it goes into looking into you know, whether Bolsonaro was committing anti-democratic crimes on, on U.S. soil and, of course, waiting around to see if Lula calls for his extradition, which they haven't yet done. And that would be a very interesting question of whether there is a, a more serious diplomatic exchange between the U.S. and Brazil on the basis of Bolsonaro's criminal behavior and relationship to the yesterday's insurrection. Finally, can we talk about how the left are responding? Should we expect counter-mobilizations across Brazil? So today is the day after the insurrection. Uh, I'm here in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and there is a large mobilization of social movements, popular forces, trade unions here as a sort of demonstration of a force to show, as I was just speaking with Guilherme Bolos, uh, one of the national coordinators of the MTST, the homeless workers movement. You know, he's very clear, and I'm sure his speech this evening will make this case. The streets belong not to the Bolsonaristas. The streets belong to us. We can't let them think that street protests is a tactic of the right. You know, it's the same process that they're going through and trying to reclaim the flag, which very quickly became a symbol of Bolsonarism in the country to say, you know, no, that's our national flag. That's our national symbol. These are our streets and we're going to take them back. I think uh, it's it's easy to forget in all the kind of close-up selfies and imagery of yesterday's insurrection. It's a very small number of people in a city where none of them live. And so it's going to be very important, I think, to the popular forces across the country to say, you know, not in my name, not in my town, not in my community, not in my city, not in my country. I think we can expect a kind of sustained mobilization. The last thing I'd say there, Michael, is that I think that the, the, the context and the, the tone of the aftermath here in Brazil and there in the United States is very, very different. I mean, uh, January 6th very quickly became this moment of, uh, national uh, mourning for our democracy in some way, uh, very quickly lionized as being a kind of monuments to the robustness of our civic response, whatever you may want to call it, right? There was a lot of partisan motivation by the Democratic Party to say, you know, this is, this day shall live in infamy for the rest of eternity because it was a day in which our republic came under its most severe threat in however many years, right? That's not the tone here. Lula is calling for caution, calling for accountability, uh, calling for the mobilization of the institutions here to pursue you know, the right paths towards finding the sources of financing, criminality, and complicity in yesterday's events. But they're not pushing the big red button to say, okay, all forces out to the street, now it's game over. They're trying to say, let's be cautious, let's remember who these people are, let's remember who the broader forces are behind them, and let's begin to address those issues of institutional rot, you know, through suspending the mayor of this federal district, through dismissing the head of security forces for the federal district. Let's begin to kind of rip out the more malignant aspects of uh, Brazilian institutionality that are causing, you know, this spread of cancerous uh, anti-democratic sentiment inside the state and begin to rebuild a more democratic Brazil. That was David Adler from the Progressive International speaking to me earlier today. Next story. Rishi Sunak gave his first big interview of the year this weekend. It was with Laura Koonsberg and it got pretty uncomfortable. Were you registered with a private GP and are you still? Yeah, but, but my, my dad was a doctor. I grew up in an NHS family. Wasn't, my, my, wasn't my question. It's really straightforward. Where are you registered with a private GP? I mean, I, I, and I, are I made you a, as a general policy, I wouldn't ever talk about me or my family's healthcare situation. But again, it's not really relevant to this. What's relevant is the difference I can make to the country. Well, hang on, Prime Minister. I think there is huge public interest in the decisions that you make. 
And actually one of your predecessors, who I know you admire very much, Margaret Thatcher, she said very openly that she decided to use her right as a free citizen to spend my money in my own way so that I can go on in the day at the time with the doctor I choose and get out fast. She was perfectly happy and proud to talk about the decisions she made. Why wouldn't you tell people if you well, use private I just, healthcare? Well, I mean, it's just a personal choice. It's, a, it's about healthcare, I think, is somewhat that, that is private. But if, I think what people care about is, you know, am I going to make a difference on the thing that they care about? When it comes to the NHS, I mean, I, I literally, I grew up in an NHS family. I said, my, but, my dad but, was but, a GP, my mum was a pharmacist. And you, care, and, 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 you and I think my track record matters more, more, more than these things. But what I would say is that, I want to make sure that we do have fantastic health care for everybody. And you've made that but the claim, role but of I the think private there is, sector. Forgive me, no, but, no, this forgive is me really Prime important. Minister. There is a public interest in the decisions that the Prime Minister makes for himself. Why won't you tell us whether or not you use private health care? But, but, but again, it's a, it's a distraction from what the real issue is. And the real issue is, are we making sure that there's high quality health care available for the country? But when it comes to the private sector in general, I, we should be making use of the independent sector. I don't have any problem yeah. with that whatsoever. For example, with elective surgery, one of the things we do need to do is actually be much more open to using the independent sector capacity that is available and putting power in the hands of patients to choose where they want to have that treatment. That's something that we need to do more of. Are you registered with a private GP? My dad was a doctor. Interesting. <laughs> Uh, attempt at deflection, which didn't work very effectively there at all. Also, when you've got this touring up there saying, the real issue is, are we delivering a decent service at the NHS? No, no, we are not. On, the, on that real issue, I'll agree that's the real issue. And what does the record say that show that after 12 years, you have completely destroyed an NHS, which, by the way, you found in pretty good health. It was doing okay in 2010. It's only a disaster because of 12 years of Tory rule, because your guys have been in charge. Aaron, that is been thought of as a pretty awkward exchange with Rishi Sunak. Will he be particularly worried about that? Will his uh, PR people be banging their heads on tables? Possibly. I mean, their polling's so low at the moment. I mean, the polling's sort of mid-20s. So, you know, are they losing voters in those polls because of what he's saying? I mean, probably not. I mean, it explains why they're solo already, right? My theory with Rishi Sunak, Michael, is that he's basically there to ensure the Tories get 30% at the next general election. I think anything more than that's a real accomplishment. And look, there could be a hung parliament, or there could be a very small Labour majority. You know, it could be the Tories get 33 34%, and that's a good result for them. Things are a long way away, two years away. But if you look at the fundamentals, Michael, I think 1.3 million people are seeing their mortgages up for renewal this year, inflation at 10%, public services crumbling. We're looking at a recession of 1% in 2023. All those fundamentals would suggest that the Tories are screwed. And so I, I feel like that matters more than an interview. However, there's clearly an argument to say, well, if you have a talented politician with a good policy offer, with good media and successful attacks on the Labour opposition, then yes, they could probably get a hung parliament, right? And, and right now, it doesn't look like Rishi Sunak's living up to that. Uh, his answer to me was more reminiscent of politics in sort of 2003 than 2023 where you could have somebody saying, it doesn't matter where you're from, it's about where you're going, you know, which is how we ended up with David Cameron and George Osborne, two very, 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 very posh people with absolutely no credentials, almost no career outside of politics. I mean, David Cameron did some public relations stuff for Carlton, which is, was, became ITV. George Osborne literally never had a job outside of politics other than folding sweaters, I believe, at Selfridges or Harrods. And so this kind of idea that, oh, well, we don't judge people on their background. We judge people on the, you know, their ability and their skill and their competence. Actually, in the last five years, 
this stuff really does matter. People don't want to see a guy who's a multi, multi, multi-millionaire talk about how he's helping fix the NHS while himself using a private GP. And there's an interesting point by Laura Koonsberg that Margaret Thatcher presented herself as a, as a morally calculated, ethically driven politician, and she followed through on that. So she said things because she believed them, not necessarily because she thought they were popular. And there's an interesting contrast between her answer on that precise question and what Rishi Sunak said. I actually think the kinds of people that the Tories now need to win back people that voted conservative in the last general election over 45. I think if he said, look, I, as prime minister, need same day appointments from my GP. That's in the national interest. That's my view. People can obviously access healthcare as they see fit. But I think we should have an NHS publicly available to all. I think the kinds of voters they need to win back generally wouldn't mind as much compared to what they're seeing there, right? Which is a slippery, and I'm sure many of them would mind but a lot more care about how slippery and evasive he, he seemed in the interview. And it does make you think, Michael, cast your mind forward some, what now? 15, 16 months to May 2024. We're going to have two party leaders who <clears throat> compulsively don't answer questions. And it's going to be a really remarkable experiment in anti-politics. And I wonder who wins from that exercise. If we have Starmer and Sunak both tending not to answer questions, both evading their record in and outside government, both trying to avoid the fact they've been deeply hypocritical on a number of things. Of course, we saw Keir Starmer basically support outsourcing when he was talking to Sofa Ridge on Sky News. You can see a situation where basically people say they're all as bad as each other. And yes, we get a hung parliament. But as it stands, Rishi Sunak's appearance, awful as it was, I think explains why the Tories are, in some opinion polls, 15 to 20 points behind. Do you think it substantively matters? I mean, I suppose we talked about the optics of this. Will it be damaging for Rishi Sunak? Is it actually a problem? Should we care if a prime minister uses private doctors? Is, does that mean they will make policy that is less beneficial for the NHS? Will it seem that less urgent to them? I suppose there's the claim that there's a the conflict of interest or they don't experience the same service the rest of us do. Going back again to the Margaret Thatcher example, she believed in the private sector and she believed in a certain amount of choice for people. So her preference for a private GP was congruent with that. If you've got Rishi Sunak and the Tories, really since Cameron, have said, we are the party of the NHS. We don't really disagree that profoundly with Labour on the NHS. It should be publicly available to all. It should be free to all. They moved away from a wing of the party, which was quite open about wanting to privatise the NHS, which, by the way, a big subsection of the, of the Tory party was until relatively recently. There was that MP from Dorset, Oliver, I can't remember his bloody name, Oliver Letwin, who wrote the manifesto for one of the early elections in the 2000s, so like 2001, 2005. And he, he was one of the evangelists for privatising the NHS. You know, those people have not been allowed anywhere near a senior position in the Conservative Party for a long time because they know it's a huge political Achilles heel for them. So yes, I think, I think they are exposed on this issue. If they're claiming to be a party of public service, we fund, actually, we fund the NHS more than the Labour Party. And then the Prime Minister is literally using a private GP. I think that's a big problem for them. And it's a big difference to what you saw with, with Thatcher. Thatcher. Thatcher really impressed people by just being so upfront with her bullshit, right? She was the opposite of evasive and slippery. And even people who despised her 
and would never vote for her, had a certain respect for her because of that. That's the opposite of what you just saw with Rishi Sunak. Why are you using a private GP? If you're using a private GP, why are you using a private GP? And doesn't that show that you've failed over the past 12 years? You know, if, if you think you can only have an efficient work-life balance if you have a private GP, doesn't that mean something's gone wrong in the NHS and who's been in charge of the NHS for the last 12 years? Oh, it was you. If he feels he has to go private, that shows that something has gone wrong. They've been in power for the last 12 years. So to me, that looks like kind of an admission of failure. We've screwed up the NHS so much, I've gone private. Is essentially what Rishi Sunak is, well, not saying that because he's not saying anything. It's the implication of what went unsaid. Let's move to our final story of the evening. Folk wisdom has it that people get more conservative with age. It's said that people start out radical and idealistic, but as they grow older, they become more defensive of the status quo. Now, that idea used to have some basis in observable voting patterns, but if there was an age-based conveyor belt dragging us all ever more to the right, it is now broken down. A recent piece in the FT declared this, millennials are shattering the oldest rule in politics. Western conservatives are at risk from generations of voters who are no longer moving to the right as they age. And that's by John Byrne Murdoch, the FT's chief data journalist. We, we refer to him quite a lot on this show. The piece includes this chart. Each arrow represents a generation and how their voting patterns changed over time. So on the horizontal axis, you have age. On the vertical axis, you have whether at that age, people in that generation were more or less likely to vote Tory than the national average of all ages, of course. For the silent generation, so that's people born before 1945, and for boomers and Generation X, they all started out being more left-wing than the national average. But as they aged, they all became more conservative than the average. So they started out when they were young, they were left-wing. When they were old, they were right-wing. For millennials, though, this relationship seems to have broken down. And in fact, millennials seem to be getting more left-wing as they age. So why aren't millennials getting more right-wing as they get older? Well, Laura Koonsberg asked Rishi Sunak for his ideas. You are the youngest prime minister at 42 in a, in a very long time, but we're in the 13th year of conservative rule. There's a whole generation that's come of age during that time when rents have gone through the roof, childcare has become extortionate, they're paying more and more tax, owning a house is further and further out of reach. The polls suggest that you're someone very unusual in your early 40s who fancies voting Conservative. Um, why would anyone under 45 vote Conservative? I think that the country's priorities are, are, are pretty clear. And those are to make sure that we do manage the economy responsibly. That's the thing that's going to make a difference to everybody, whatever age you are. You talked about buying a house. Mm. It's going to be harder to buy a house if interest rates are higher. Well, why are interest rates going to be higher? It's because inflation is higher. So the best thing we can do to help that generation is to get interest rates down and that means getting inflation down, which is why the first priority I set out this year was to halve inflation. The second priority I set out was to grow the economy because I want there to be fantastic jobs in every part of the country for all those young people. We, you talked about the next generation. We shouldn't burden them with debts. That's mm -hmm. why it's important that we reduce borrowing a debt. That's the third promise I made. And, and then the last two are important for them too, mm -hmm. where it's about cutting waiting lists and stopping the boats. I think everyone cares about those. Everyone has a family member that at any point in time is reliant on the NHS, whether it's a grandparent who needs a, you know, a hip operation, whether it's someone who's had to be rushed to emergency care or someone who just needs to, to see the GP for, uh, for their kid's ear infection. So having a really well-performing NHS is important to everybody. And, and stopping the boats is about fairness. 
And I think that is a value that everyone in this country believes in, regardless of what age you are. And, and having a system which is seen as unfair because people are abusing it isn't the right thing. It's not the right long-term thing for this country. And that's why those are the right priorities. Why should young people vote Conservative? Oh, because young people also have an interest in a decent NHS. That's a reason not to vote Conservative, Rishi Sunak. Um, I also like the idea you're going to win back the under-45s by stopping small boats crossing the channel. We don't care. Aaron, what do you make, I suppose, both of this data point about millennials not becoming more right-wing? And then, I mean, yeah. there's hardly anything to comment on in Rishi Sunak, kind of non-answer there. But let's start with the phenomenon, let's say. I mean, I think there is, but yeah, let's start with the phenomenon. So I would start by saying, actually, Michael, I take umbrage with this idea that it's the oldest rule in politics. I mean, I don't think that's necessarily true. It's definitely, it's definitely something which has defined 20th century politics. But the idea that you become more conservative with age, I mean, historically, most people just didn't live that long. If you look at, for instance, the word Senate in Rome, it comes from Senex, which means older man. In ancient Sparta, you had the Gerousia, that's where we get the word uh, geriatric from. It was ruled by the elderly because they were wise. So this idea that you became more right-wing or more left-wing, it just wasn't a, a thing. You became more wise and more risk-averse, I, pre I presume you could say, as you became older. But the idea that you map um, a right-wing, right-left-wing split onto age, very contemporary phenomenon. Clearly, over the course of the 20th century, that is a, a fair thing to say, You know, it's a, particularly after the Second World War. Millennials aren't pursuing that path, I think, for a bunch of reasons, which I'm sure you know our audience are more familiar with that than anyone else. That age cohort came of age. I mean, I graduated the year 2007 with the global financial crisis kicked off, Michael. So I entered the labor market, which over the preceding 15 years didn't offer real rising wages, kept me off the housing ladder. Uh, I had significant student debt, which has also only got worse for people ever since. You know, Rishi Sunak was asked about high taxes for millennials. Student debt is a really big tax, which we don't talk about. You know, I don't recall Laura Koonsberg even saying student debt and debt repayments because they are a form of tax. You know, basically, uh, if you look at the marginal rate of tax that middle income earners who are millennials pay, it's higher than higher income earners who are that bit older, who don't have student debt. So I think the material explanations are quite straightforward. You can't afford to buy a house. You can barely afford to rent or you're being traumatized by having to move every other year. You can't afford to start a family. You certainly can't afford to save for old age, let alone look after your parents if they need you. So these are all the basics of a, of a good life. Housing, family, progress, uh, a sense of tomorrow being better than today and today being better than yesterday. That's evaporated over the last 15 years because really we've been in a moment of national decline. We've had one lost decade. We're halfway through the second one. I think we could even have a third one. It's an awful way for people to experience their lives. And that has triggered a sense of political activation amongst many people under 45, not everyone. And of course, there are older people as well who are very left-wing and agree with everything I just said. But those people say, well, you know what? I only get one shot at life and I, I don't want to rent forever. And I don't want to be living in a, in a miserable experience. And I want a sense of community. And if I do rent, I, I want to be in a place where I know people and I don't have to move every six months. And I want a job is, which is fulfilling. I don't want outsourcing in the, in the NHS. I want an effective service. So there's a reason why this age cohort has given up on capitalism or neoliberalism more specifically. And that's because neoliberalism has given up on them. The specifics of what Rishi Sunak said, I thought were actually quite revealing, Michael. So he said, 
about how younger people, millennials, Gen Z, need a responsibly managed economy because that's in their rational interest. Well, the Tories have been in charge for the last 13 years, and that's when millennials have become more left-wing. And one reason why is because you haven't responsibly managed the economy. There haven't been real rising wages. You haven't been able to get on the housing ladder if you work hard. There's been a dysfunction within the internal logics of the conservative worldview. Then secondly, he says, if you want low inflation, which is an outgrowth of economic management, then you need to vote Tory. Well, inflation is presently 10% and we've got Tories running the country. So there was so much internal incoherence within his own argument. I think that really makes the case for why the Conservatives should no longer be in power, Michael. You know, Rishi Sunak unconsciously laid out a series of statements as to why he himself should not be the Prime Minister. What a world we're living in. And I think there's there's a bit of a divide in the Conservative Party now between people who think this doesn't really matter because there are enough old people in this country and people, you know, have quite long lives now. There's going to be a huge pensioner cohort, which is quite key in elections for a long time. So they don't really need the under 45s. I think maybe the complacency of Rishi Sunak's answer suggested he's on, on that side because it seemed to me he was just paying lip service there to an answer. He didn't strike me as someone who'd thought seriously about this. The people who do seem to care about getting younger people to vote conservative or getting younger people to vote conservative as they turn 30 or 40 or whatever, their plan seems to be to build more houses and they think that, or potentially make it easier to get a mortgage. So what they want to do is get more young people on the property ladder. And their assumption is that once those younger people are on the property ladder, then you will start to see that shift to the right that we saw throughout the 20th century, which you can say, you know, I suppose your traditional right winger would say, oh, there's a correlation between age and conservatism because you get more sensible as you get older and conservatism is the sensible option. I think my analysis is more older people tend to be more conservative because they have more assets they want to protect. They have more property. So they're more concerned about redistribution because they think they'll have to give up what they already own. My question to you, slightly long-winded there, in a roundabout way, if the Tories do manage to get a few more millennials on the property ladder, let's say, can they expect that sort of association between ageing and conservatism to re-establish itself? In a word, I don't think so, Michael. No. I said in a word and then I said a sentence. No, I don't (laughs) think they can. The reason why, there's a bit of a Mark Goldbridge there for anybody who watches United Stand. Um, The reason why is that you've got increased interest rates, higher interest rates, which means that accessing credit's more expensive. We have been in a moment of low credit really since 2007-8, which has been wonderful if you're one of these older people on the housing ladder, you want your car on HP, high purchase, you know, you're living a lovely life. We're coming to the end of that. So if you are a millennial, for instance, who who got onto the mortgage ladder in say 2021, you got a two-year mortgage, you're remortgaging in 2023. I mean, interest rates might mean that you can't even get a mortgage. You might have to go back to renting or you're paying thousands of pounds on your mortgage more than you would have paid to rent before you bought a home. So I don't think that, Michael. No, I think fundamentally with the the changes we're seeing now in higher inflation and higher interest rates are a big problem. And because millennials who get onto the housing ladder, who, who do exist, they get onto the housing ladder, they're still buying massively inflated assets. They're buying really expensive properties. Even if it's just a one bed flat in London, it's really expensive, right? They're really highly leveraged with lots of debt, which leaves them the most exposed to higher interest rates. So I would be very, very 
skeptical of the argument that, oh, well, we'll just create homeowners and then, uh, then they'll become conservatives. Because actually, no, those people will take a really, really big interest in monetary policy. And if you see medium term interest rates return to where they were before 2007, which is about 5 6%, then I think that's politically unmanageable. And actually, simply put, a lot of people can't get mortgages. And the ones that can are paying more for those mortgages than when they are renting, or all the same. So no, I don't think so. If somehow they magic create a situation where we go back to low interest rates, low inflation, and they want to get young people onto the housing ladder, a bit like they did with um, Help to Buy after 2013, but much bigger and more successful, reinflate the bubble that way. Yeah, it's plausible. But I think the fundamentals of the global economy, the end of cheap energy, cheapish energy, the decoupling from both Russia and China with hydrocarbons, but also cheap consumer durables, deglobalization. I think these all feed into long term in terms of our, our lifetimes, right? Over the last 20, 30, 40 years, we're going to see higher inflation, higher interest rates. So I don't think home ownership is going to make people more conservative, no. And even if it were, I think it's difficult to see how they're going to massively increase the number of homeowners with house prices as they are and wages as they currently are. You'd even need house prices to collapse, which you know they're probably not going to let happen because there are a lot of voters who currently own homes right? Or you're going to have to massively increase wages so people can afford those houses. And it doesn't seem as if the Tories have any interest in letting that happen. So the transition to getting to a place where young people could afford housing, it's difficult to see how you would manage that as the Conservative Party when your base is asset owners who don't want the value of their properties to fall. It's a bit of a dilemma they've got. Let's wrap up there. Aaron Bastani, a pleasure being joined by you this evening. My pleasure, Michael. There is one solution to all that, which I think we will see, which is 50, 60-year mortgages, 50-year mortgages. Feudalism, Michael, that is the future of conservatism in the 21st century. Do we want that? I don't. That's why you need to support Navarra Media. Support Navarra Media. Oppose feudalism. Join us again on Wednesday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tiski Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.